For those who are watching online, we are glad that you're joining us, and uh, we look forward to the time that you can once again be with us, and hopefully uh, we can encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching, as Hebrews has told us. Begin with a story. It was a, a day that it seemed like a long day. He'd been out hunting, and it just wasn't getting much of anything, it appeared, and and it, it went on and on and on, and the day turned into a trip, and he kept going and kept going, and he, far and wide, he just didn't seem like anything was really getting anywhere, and finally Esau just gave up and he came back home, whether it was home or a camp, however, he found Jacob there preparing a wonderful meal of a red stew, and Esau was starving. I mean, he thought he was dying because he was so hungry. Now, whether that was literal or figurative, we really don't know for sure. But I've been there before, and I have been hungry, and I have said, I'm dying. I need something to eat. Well, it must have really meant something to Esau because in the process of his starvation... His brother, his twin brother, by the way, you know, twins, they often kind of egg each other on, but this wasn't just that. Jacob had something more intentional behind it. And so as he's preparing this meal and Esau comes in starving, Esau says, I want some of that stew that you're making. And Jacob says, hey, you can have a bowl, but give me the birthright. <laughs> and you know what? Esau said, sure. You can have it. Now, you have to understand what the birthright was. Barely was Esau born before Jacob. A lot of times these twins are right there together. Matter of fact, these two, when they were born, were together. Because as Esau was being born, Jacob had his hand on Esau's ankle, and he had a firm grasp on it. And so Jacob received the name at birth as the one who grasps by the heel, the one who trips. And so that's what Jacob meant. So he says, I'll give you some stew, but you've got to give me your birthright. Well, you have to understand what the birthright is. If a father had two sons, and when he passed away, his inheritance would be divided by three. The oldest son would get two-thirds, and the youngest would get one-third. And to Esau, it didn't matter. The family had a lot of money, it appeared, and so he's willing to give whatever it takes because he's hungry. And so he gave up that double portion of Isaac's estate in order to have food. But you have to understand the importance of that birthright. It came with not only the wealth, but also the blessing of being the spiritual leader and to this family in particular, the blessing was a blessing that had come from God over Abraham and over Isaac and over Jacob now. And so it would be the one that receives it would be best on with this blessing. I mean, it's a foolish, spontaneous act. And Esau demonstrated not only his indifference, but his utter contempt for all that God had promised him, Abraham and his family, and that eventually from them would come the promised blessing in this world, the Messiah. We read that story in Genesis, the 17th chapter, and, and Esau, the scripture tells us, despised this birthright so much that he was willing to sell the blessings for a bowl of soup. I've never been that hungry. Later in life, Esau came to realize how foolish that moment in life was. 
and just to surrender his birthright, and, but it was too late now. And we're told here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17, that, that finally, even through tears, as Esau went to his father, as his father is dying and he's presenting the blessing, in tears he's begging his dad, please give it to me. And he realizes that Jacob, from his perspective, has stolen his blessing and the birthright. But even with his tears, he could not buy back that which was so easily given away. Every time I hear that story, I can't help but look upon Esau and see him as one of the most foolish men in the Bible. I mean, he didn't have to sell his birthright to obtain this little treasure or this pearl of God's blessing. He only had to accept what God had already given him. But so often, like Esau, you and I are willing to give away what God has so graciously given us in order to obtain something that is even more temporary than a bowl of soup. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's for us. And these are the kinds of blessings that are infinite value because they're provided by an almighty God who in his grace and in his mercy and his, his wonderful goodness decides to share that with us. And his generosity is not limited. It's not even limited by our own imaginations. We cannot even begin to think of what he's going to bless us with in life. And so for those who turn to him, he's willing to give us all these things. And he's willing to break the chains of sin that has bound us and that has confined us, and he's willing to remove those from us simply because he loves us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 12 tells us this, that therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and in 55. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He, he says that it's only the redeemed masterpiece of the grace of God that he has created for us that we can receive this wonderful gift. John writes to the church there in, in John chapter 1, verse 12. He says, but to all who did receive him, that's Jesus. Everyone who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We put our faith in Jesus, we get to be one who receives an inheritance and a blessing. We get a birthright that really is not ours to begin with, but he graciously gives it to us. The firstborn of all creation, Jesus himself, is going to relinquish his inheritance for you and for me by simply our faith and our trust in him. But despite all the glorious riches, despite all things that he has offered to us, can we truly say that the treasures of our hearts reflect a genuine motivation 
to give up that which we cannot keep to obtain that which we cannot lose. So this morning I want us to do a little mountain climbing. We find it in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to kind of dig into the middle section of this, of this book and of this chapter. And in this chapter, verses 18 through 29, we're going to discover that they've been put in order to help remind us that not only of the infinite value of the blessings of Christ, but also discover the warnings that the tears of the foolish on that final day will never be able to change because we cannot put out a fire that is an all-consuming fire, and it is the fire of God. So let's begin by these two mountains. The first one I want us to look at is the mountain of fear. We find it in verse 18 through 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire in darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Before we can truly understand the value and the blessing that, that are being offered by the holiness of God, before we can begin to understand all this, that we can hear the trumpet of blast of his voice of this holy God, before the time of Christ came into this world, there was a relationship that was trying to be developed by God with his people. And so on this mountain that we see here, we have to go back into the Old Testament with a man by the name of Moses and a people who were slaved in Egypt. And as they left and they began to wander, God took them to this mountain. It was a kind of mountain that could not be touched because it burned with fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, as we discover here in verse 18. It would be like climbing a volcano as it's erupting. I mean, how foolish would that be? And yet, that is exactly kind of what was taking place. The descriptions here that are being given, I don't know if I would want to approach that type of a mountain, but the verse contains three different synonyms for the word darkness. He's talking about darkness and darkness and darkness. And so the first word that we use here in the English Standard Version for the word is darkness itself. And it comes from a word called gnophis. Gnophis basically means it's the darkness which accompanies a storm, that, that heavy cloud covering that, that blocks out the sun, and you know something dreadful is coming. And then, then another word that is used is this word gloom. And this is the gloom of, of twilight or of dusk in which there's barely enough light to see. And all you see are shapes and images somehow in the midst of that grayness. And he began to fear what could be lurking in the shadows. The third word is translated tempest. And it comes from a word, thuela. Thuela is this word which can also mean the darkness that covers a storm, uh, kind of like the, uh, the, the hurricane. If you see it approaching, it, and it, just, it just blocks out everything. And you know that with it, with this hurricane or this whirlwind or this tempest as it's coming, that something dreadful is there. But it also includes 
moments of flashes of lightning. And so this mountain, as they're approaching, is covered with fire. And the darkness is surrounding them. And all of a sudden, they might see a flash of lightning. And they hear a voice that is resounding off the mountainside. And they were terrified. And Moses himself, who has been this man of God that God spoken to, he himself says, I tremble with fear. And he's going to the same mountain upon which he saw that burning bush. And now all of a sudden, he himself even has this fear. So due to their unworthiness and their unholiness because of their sinful lives, he says, should either a man or a beast lay foot on that mountain, they were immediately to be put to death by stoning or by shooting an arrow at them, but no one was supposed to lay a hand on them. So if you see someone or some animal approaching that mountain, and as soon as they put foot there upon it, you needed to kill them before they possessed any further. Listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 19, verses 12 and 13. He says, And you shall set limits for all the people around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death, and no hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. See, God's voice, it spoke this warning out of the fire and out of the rumbling and the thunder of that mountain. And it cut through the darkness and it penetrated the souls of all those people who were there before him. And they terrified. And they began to beg Moses to ask God never to speak to them again. Because who can live in the presence of God? And who can live if they've ever heard the voice of God? And so they've heard it and they say, we're done. We can't handle this anymore. It's too terrifying for us. Moses, you tell God, please don't ever talk to us again. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. You see, fear of God just... For his condemnation as it comes out to the people, they know that, that they can't be near him and live, and they're afraid of what might happen. And so for anybody who broke his laws in the Old Testament time, it was just simply too much to bear because they knew they would be punished. Even Moses, who courageously stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go time and time again, he himself said, I tremble with fear. If Israel was to be God's people, 
The mark of holiness would not be negotiated, but determined and enforced by God who is sovereign, who is holy, and who is firmly in charge of all things, whether they be seen or unseen. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we're told that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And he placed eternity into their hearts so that their souls might seek him. We go into the book of Acts and we see in chapter 17, Paul reiterates that very same thing, that you and I were born where we were born, when we were born, at the exact time and location, so that perhaps we might seek him and find him. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time, and also He has put eternity in our hearts, yet so that He cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So those who witnessed or even heard of the ten plagues coming out of Egypt, or, or they were able to partake of the manna that was provided for them every day as they wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years. Or, or for those who, who were able to walk. Can you imagine walking on dry ground as the water is being held up on both sides of the Red Sea? Or even crossing the Jordan River in flood stage and knowing that all of a sudden God stops it and allows you to go through. For the fall of Jericho as they walked around that great fortified city six days and on the seventh day they went around it and finally those walls began to tremble and collapse in on the city. These people who were able to watch the sun and the moon stand still long enough for their army to defeat their enemies on that day. For those who were able to look inside that fiery furnace and see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego along with a fourth person who looked like the Son of God, walking around in there untouched, unharmed by the fire. And yet a fire that was so hot and so brilliant that those who were casting them into that furnace died on their way there because of the heat. It should not come as any surprise that they came to see God as the rock of their salvation. The one who was able to to do anything and everything to provide for his people. And yet they still turned their back on him. And we wonder why. How could they do that? If I had seen that, if I had experienced that, if I had been there, there'd be no way I'd ever do that. But those people who had witnessed this, they still turned away. And God's blessings, however, did not come without a price. He simply said he needed strict obedience to his law. And those who, were, who witnessed Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, as they were going about their priestly duties and they grabbed an incense burner and they put incense in it and they offered up an unholy fire that was not authorized by God and God then sends fire down from heaven and kills them right there on the steps. Maybe it was a time when the people of Israel were bit by poisonous snakes because of their grumbling and complaining about having to eat the manna every day. So they had to look at a bronze serpent on a staff that Moses created. God says, if they get bitten, make them look at that. They'll live. 
Or maybe it was being there on Mount Carmel at that moment when they executed the 400 plus prophets of Baal because God sent fire from heaven to destroy and to eat up the sacrifice that Elijah had prepared for them. And the prophets of Baal couldn't get their God to send any kind of fire. Our God is a consuming fire, and that mountain was consumed with the fire of God. And Israel soon realized that the breaking of any one of their 613 commands that God had given them in their law, it was an invitation to receive God's mighty wrath and His destruction. Even the way to be forgiven was difficult because something had to be done about a sacrifice and blood had to be shed. And if it wasn't their blood, an animal had to be offered in their stead so that they could have their sins rolled back for a period of time. And it was only done by God's specific plans, by His design, in His place, by His specifically chosen people, the Levites, and then just one of those people, the priest, and only once a year. And if you have to be a Gentile believer... You're kind of out of luck almost. You can't even go into the inner courts and to have your sacrifice right there. But the mountain of fear, it was terrifying. But there also comes another mountain which we can climb. So let's look at this next mountain. It begins in verse 22. And I'll call it the mountain of joy. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I just can't praise God enough for the, the moment upon conversion in my life which we have this opportunity to enter into this mountain of joy. We don't come to an earthly mountain that is darkness and gloom and, and tempest and storm. Instead, we come to one which is sprinkled with the blood of our mediator who has appeased God's righteous wrath and has taken it upon himself so we don't have to. And it makes us righteous and holy. And we wonder why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though God retains his role as judge under this new covenant that Jesus has established for us, those who have their names written in the book of life in heaven... We don't need to fear outright condemnation because our mediator stands before God the judge always interceding for us and he has already purchased our atonement for our sins and he has created a way for us to even be called the children of God. Listen to what John chapter 1 verse 12 says. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, whom believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When we put our faith and our trust in him, he then has this ability to bring us into the family of God, 
And we now become children of God, heirs according to the promise that was so far forsaken by Esau years ago. We're born again, immersed believers in Jesus Christ, and as that, we're able to experience unspeakable joy because we stand not at a sacred mountain that cannot be touched, but we stand at the foot of Mount Zion, the holy mountain of God, the, the living new Jerusalem, the city of God. And even though it's invisible, it is still spiritual, and it is most definitely accessible. And we won't be stoned or shot when we approach it, but we've been given an invitation to climb. While Mount Zion points to the eschatological future of all those who put their faith in Jesus in the end times, it also presents some beautiful and wonderful ramifications about it in our present day as well. I mean, the moment that Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn. We've talked about that numerous times here in the book of Hebrews. And it signified that the separation between God and an unholy people was now being removed and he was allowing us access to him because this was going to be under a new covenant, a new relationship that is better than the old one that he established. And in this new covenant, God's spirit is going to dwell inside the heart of every believer and we become a place of his residence. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How much did it cost Esau? It cost him a lot. How much does it cost you and me? Nothing. Because the price has been paid by Jesus. So we, we saw in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 1 through 18, that the once and for all atonement of Christ means that forgiveness of sins is through the confession, the repentance, and through animal sacrifice. And all that took place over and over again. That's what Hebrews tells us. Under the old covenant, you had to have that every year. But the blood of this new covenant, the sacrifice that is made through Jesus on the cross, it communicates to us joy. It communicates that there is a warmth and an openness and an acceptance and a relationship that we could never have had before because he has set off this bold relief against the dismal picture of the assembly of people afraid to enter and approach God because they knew that if they did, they would die. And so at this point in our passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, our author here invites us to consider how we're going to respond to the blessings of God which he offers to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Will we be like Esau and see that our birthright purchased through the blood of Christ as irrelevant or worse yet, despicable? Just willing to give it away. And then, then when we realize it's too late, we cry that God would do something. When it's too late, it's too late. While this seems like a very harsh question to ask Christians, do many of us not still sometimes see God's commands as burdensome? What? You mean I can't do that? You mean I've got to do this? And we know He wants us to be whole and He wants us to live a certain way. And so sometimes we think, well, this is it's just too burdensome. It's too much for me to worry about. I can't do that. I, I want to do these other things. 
But listen to what John says in 1 John 5, 3. He says, for this is the love of God. Right? This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Still, I think others look especially at the one that says in 1 Peter 1, 6, and since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And we go, there's no way. There's no way. We're, we're told you need to be perfect as I am perfect. You need to be holy as I am. I can't be holy. I can't be perfect. I, I've fallen from all that. It's just too much. But aren't many of us also tempted to satisfy the evil desires that grow from with our own hearts? Sometimes it appears that the world sees us not as Christ's ambassadors and his priests within this world, but as a hypocritical voice amongst all the competing philosophies of our generation. Surely God means more to us than anything else. Our possessions, our families, maybe even He means more to us than even our life. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Could it be that our itching ears, as Paul tells Timothy, that we've gathered around us men and women who tell us what we want to believe rather than living by faithfully what the Word of God says to us. And these people encourage us to live by a life of cheap grace. So we're standing with both feet in Satan's kingdom, and yet we want to reach out and touch a little bit of what God has to offer. We can't be in both kingdoms. We've got to choose one or the other. And even if we sin, even if we sin, many, of, many people see the God of the new covenant as one of love and grace, but not a God of discipline. And yet he is the same God of the Old Testament, and he has not changed. Scripture tells us in James, he doesn't change like the shifting shadows. He's constant. He's the same. So if he is a God of wrath and a God of condemnation in the Old Testament, why don't we see that in the New? But it's there. We just don't want to see it. So many of us think, what harm will it ever become for those who do not fear and obey him anyway? Because after all, he is a God of love. Right. Listen to what it says. We've got this mountain of fear in the Old Covenant. We've got a mountain of joy under this New Covenant. But we still have to recognize that, third, there is a God who is a consuming fire. Those words are written here in the New Testament under this New Covenant, explaining the New Covenant, which is better than the old one. And he still says he's a God who is a consuming fire. Listen in verse 25 through 29. See that you, Christians... Do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now as he has promised, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens." This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
And let's let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. See, even though fear is, is not a, a tender, endearing motive for us to, to melt the heart with love, it's very important that we know that a fearful thing is to spurn those tender, endearing words that are spoken by Christ that he speaks to our hearts. Grace, Paul says, is not a license to sin. Just because you have grace of God doesn't mean you should keep on sinning. By no means, he says. We can't keep doing that. We've got to stop that lifestyle and turn to live a life that he calls us to be holy. See, it's an invitation to serve in the power of he who is able to transform the hearts of stone into flesh. Ezekiel tells us in 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's interesting. That when that old covenant was enacted, he was dealing with a man that was a pharaoh over all Egypt. And he had a hard heart. He hardened his heart against God and against what he was wanting to do. And there were even moments when God hardened his heart when he, Pharaoh thought he might cave in and just give. But no longer do we have to have a hard heart in life because what Jesus is doing, he's giving us a new heart. A new heart that is not one of stone, but a heart that is made of flesh that is soft. And how much more severe then, the question is this, will the judgment and the punishment be upon those who have the full word of God and his spirit to guide them and yet refuse his gracious gifts of reconciliation? For those who choose to keep their self-seeking hearts, their momentary pleasures, and their false notions that God no longer disciplines his children and those he loves, the author of Hebrews tells us, matter of fact, he warns us that when God's judgment falls upon this earth, its kingdoms will pass away when he returns. And so there is a moment when he is going to come not as a loving savior, but as a king dressed for battle. And justice and judgment will come. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Our proper response to the blessings of God and to this new covenant which he offers up is not to be lukewarm or even to be contemptible against him. I mean, he's, you've got to either be hot or cold. And he says he would rather us be cold against him than being this lukewarm person because he'll spit us out of his mouth. 
Instead, we're supposed to be joyous and thankful that his kingdom alone is unshakable and this new covenant is irrevocable because those who believe in the atoning sacrifice of his son, we then are to worship God with reverence and awe. That word awe is the word fear because he is this consuming fire. We need to always remember that while his love and his grace knows no limits, Neither does his judgment. God loves you, yes. He died for you, yes. But he still has to be just and right. He's not necessarily fair. That's not about it. He's not someone who can be bought off, who can be tricked, who can be deceived. He is true and holy and noble but he's also just and judgmental. Our proper response to this blessing makes a whole lot. Like Esau, we do not have to sell out but merely receive God's gracious gifts of his salvation and the blessings that he wants to bestow upon us. Just because we are redeemed masterpieces of his grace, his ambassadors and his royal priesthood does not mean that we get to remake God into our image and so many of us try to do that so that he might become more acceptable to our worldly desires. That's not who he is. And even though Jesus atoned on the cross for every sin that we have and every one that we're ever going to commit, it doesn't matter whether the past, present, or future, he died so that we can be made right and holy in him. It doesn't mean that he can treat his commands with indifference or worse, yes, Outright rejection. Jesus did not die to give us license to sin, but so that you and I might have life and have it fully and abundantly. And that we would not only serve because of what he's done there, but, but also because we love him and we're in reverent awe of who he is. And so this generation that we live in, with all of our self-centeredness, we like to shun accountability. We want to pawn it off on somebody else. It's never my fault. This passage here in Hebrews should serve both as a blessing and as a warning for us. To be able to boldly approach God is a privilege that came at the cost of His one and only Son, Jesus. And those who see that fact as trifle, when they bounce it off of their stone hearts, we should remember the God of yesterday who struck down those who indulged in sin. He is the same God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So I think we need to examine our lives and really begin to look at who we are and how we're treating His Word and how we're being obedient to it or not. He calls us to respond to Him to respond to the birthright that he offers up for us. And it is yours. It's yours to keep. But he doesn't want you to sell it for something that's cheap and temporary. Maybe it's just to be able to get a little bit more money, I'm going to do this. Or maybe it's to get an evening of pleasure, I'm going to do this. And we walk on and, and we trample underfoot the cross of Christ and what he has done. 
But no, he wants us to see that we can approach him at Mount Zion, in the holy city of heaven, unashamed, without any guilt or fear because of what Jesus has done. And we don't sell that for anything. But it's a gift that he offers to each one of us if we're willing to take it. And so that's what we offer you today, a chance to say, I want it. A moment to say that I want this new covenant that's been created by Jesus so that I can't work my way to heaven because I know I'll never make it. And if you've never accepted that gift, the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of everlasting eternal life, today's a good day for you to take that confess him as Lord, to repent of the things that you've done that have gone against him, to, to surrender yourself to him. Maybe you need to be baptized, to die to self and be raised to life anew, connecting with him and his name because it's only in his name that we find grace and forgiveness and salvation. But if you want to make that decision, I challenge you to do that today. We're going to have an invitation song. And if you would like to make that a new life for you, today's the day to do it. Don't put it off. Let's stand together.